This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2017, held at Faith Builders on August 1 through 4. We teach not in a vacuum. We teach out of our own lives. We're in a classroom with real people. And the purpose goes beyond what we want, what we care about. We are educating and training for the kingdom. There is a higher purpose than a convenient life as a teacher. And um, so I'm grateful that we can think together about educating for the kingdom. There's four elements that Jeremy will be looking at this week, and his um, 13 years in education, I think, have given him um, plenty to talk from and talk about. Uh, he's a uh, upper grades, middle school and upper grades teacher and principal of Sunlight River Brethren um, School. And uh, I'm really excited uh, to hear what, after those many, many years, that's not very many years. I'm just pointing it out. That's not very many years. 13 is not that many, is it? Uh, what is God teaching Jeremy? And um, these ideas, I think, are worth us considering, especially as you begin your teaching career. You're on the front edge of that, and getting some of these ideas seems important to me as we start. Jeremy. Thank you, Gerald. No, it's not that many years. It's not that long ago that I was here in the uh, teacher apprenticeship program with Gerald. But uh, now I come here today with my family, and they are here, my wonderful wife, and Shana and Cedric, and you can see we're expecting a third one later this year. So as Gerald said, I'm a principal and teacher, and I'm also a firefighter in our community, so if you hear some illustrations along that line, you'll understand where that's coming from. So educating for the kingdom, compassion. How many of you are first-year teachers? How many first-year teachers stepping into the classroom? Okay, very good. And how many of you are nervous about stepping into the classroom? Okay, good, thanks for being honest, I'm nervous too. So let's start with a story. And the story we're gonna start with today is called First Day Jitters. Sarah, dear, time to get out of bed, Mr. Hartwell said, poking his head through the bedroom doorway. You don't want to miss the first day at your new school, do you? I'm not going, said Sarah, and pulled the covers over her head. Of course you're going, honey, said Mr. Hartwell, as he walked over to the window and snapped up the shade. No, I'm not. I don't want to start over again. I hate my new school, Sarah said. She tunneled down to the end of her bed. How can you hate your new school, sweetheart? Mr. Hartwell chuckled. You've never been there before. Don't worry, you liked your other school. You'll like this one. Besides, just think of all the new friends you'll meet. That's just it. I don't know anybody, and it will be hard. And I just hate it, that's all. What will everyone think if you weren't there? We told them you were coming. 
They will think that I am lucky, and they will wish they were at home in bed like me. Mr. Hartwell sighed. Sarah Jane Hartwell, I'm not playing this silly game one second longer. I'll see you downstairs in five minutes. Sarah tumbled out of bed. She stumbled into the bathroom. She fumbled into her clothes. My head hurts, she moaned as she trudged into the kitchen. Mr. Hartwell handed Sarah a piece of toast and her lunchbox. They walked to the car. Sarah's hands were cold and clammy. They drove down the street. She couldn't breathe. And then they were there. I feel sick, said Sarah weakly. Nonsense, said Mr. Hartwell. You'll love your new school once you get started. Oh, look, there's your principal, Mrs. Burton. Sarah slumped down in her seat. Oh, Sarah, Mrs. Burton gushed, peeking into the car. There you are. Come on, I'll show you where to go. She led Sarah into the building and walked quite quickly through the crowded hallways. Don't worry, everyone is nervous the first day, she said over her shoulder as Sarah rushed to keep up. When they got to the classroom, most of the children were already in their seats. The class looked up as Mrs. Burton cleared her throat. Class, class, attention please, said Mrs. Burton. When the class was quiet, she led Sarah to the front of the room and said, class, I would like you to meet your new teacher, Mrs. Sarah Jane Hartwell. <laughs> Are you less nervous now? <laughs> Everyone knows what to do during a story. story. Stories automatically draw us in because that's how we're wired, because life is a story. But sometimes we get so caught up in our own stories that we forget about the other stories in the room. The first step to compassion is to imagine ourselves in someone else's shoes. Good teachers get nervous too but they remember that the students are nervous as well, and if we're in this boat together, we might as well row the boat. But before we get into our compassion theme, I'd like to define the terms we'll be using this week in our theme, Educating for the Kingdom. So first of all, I'd like to briefly look at education and then the kingdom. So first of all, what is education? Proverbs 4, we read, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not. And also, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, with all thy getting, get, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. So we see here that wisdom plus understanding equals education. So education is more nuanced than it may appear on the surface, uh, that just being things. Whenever I think about what is education, I think about uh, the story of Joe and Jim who were digging the ditch and they were down there in a ditch working hard, and by and by they noticed there was a man sitting up on the park bench reading the newspaper. And Joe says to Jim, he says, how is it that we're digging down here in this ditch working so hard, and that guy can just sit up on the park bench reading the newspaper? Well, Jim said, why don't you go ask him? So Joe went up and he asked the guy, he said, how is it that you can just sit up here reading the newspaper while we're down working so hard digging the ditch? Well, the man thought a little bit and he said, uh, I guess it's education. Oh, education, said Joe. Well, what's that? 
Well, the man thought a little more. And then he uh, held his newspaper up and he said, you see this newspaper? Joe said, yeah. He said, hit that newspaper as hard as you can. So Joe, he wailed back and he struck at that newspaper, but just as he was about to hit it, the man pulled it away and he missed. Hmm. So Joe went back down to the ditch and Jim said, well, what do you say? Well, Joe said, he said, it's education. Well, Joe said, what's that? Well, or Jim, Joe said, thought a little bit. Well, you see this shovel, he said. He held the shovel up in front of his face. <laughs> so, the world's education doesn't always teach wisdom along with understanding. Or it might teach you to be wise as serpents, but not harmless as doves in which case you're not truly wise because the truly wise look like Jesus. So education is both informative, things of the mind, and formative, things of the heart. And there's a difference. To illustrate this difference, uh, think of the, uh, the phrase speaking the truth in love. If you say to your dog, I love you, wonderful dog, or if you say to your dog, I hate you, idiotic dog. Will the dog notice a difference? And which will it respond to? So we all know that there are word, there are mind things and heart things. But it's common to emphasize the mind in education and forget that the heart is also being formed as well. So here three quick examples of each to illustrate more of the difference. Informative things emphasize what is true, how it works, what it's made of. And it's good to know these things. These things are important, but they're inherently dangerous. Think of the atomic bomb, which is often given as an example of the apex of man's knowledge. Uh, the most complicated thing that, that man has made. What does it do? It destroys. So is it truly useful or productive? Would Jesus build a bomb? Formative things deal with what you feel when your teacher is talking to you, what you desire in life, what you love. So if we teach our children to do math, but they use that skill to cheat on their taxes, have we succeeded? If we teach history, but our children repeat it, have we succeeded? And if our children grow up and just want to hang out at the mall and get rich, have we succeeded? And finally, let's compare what education is and isn't to get a fuller picture here. So. Education is not facts alone, but facts plus wisdom, as we've been talking about. Not just knowing what something is, but how to use it wisely. Education is not necessarily equal to schooling. I sure hope you're going to educate your students this year, but Mark Twain said he always tried not to let his schooling get in the way of his education. So uh, hopefully your students' time isn't being wasted in your classroom just because they're in school, uh, we hope they're actually learning there as well. 
education is growth and connections, not just putting time in behind a desk. Education is not a thing that you can download, or in our age, teachers would be irrelevant if everyone could just download the knowledge. Teachers are there to help us become the people we should become. It's a pr education is a process of becoming. And these last two are similar. Education is not just a thing that you get. You know, I now have my diploma. It's a change of being. After you've been educated, you come out of the classroom ready to impact the world, especially if you've been educated for the kingdom. So, in review, education is wisdom plus understanding, informative and formative, and it's a process or a change of being. It sums up the last slides we were looking at. Moving on now to what is the kingdom? Jesus often used stories and so to illustrate what the kingdom is, so I will use a story as well. One icy day in January 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 took off from Washington, D.C. and 20 seconds after takeoff, it plunged into the Potomac River, but not after scraping a highway bridge and killing several people on the bridge as well, and then killing 74 of its passengers. The pilots, by the way, had failed to activate the de-icers and then accommodate for the extra lift that would be needed because of the ice on the wings. The hero of that day, well, there were many heroes. Uh, for instance, one man gave his, um, he was last seen clinging to the tail section. When the lifeline was dropped to him, he passed it on to someone else who needed it more than he did, and he disappeared beneath the waters. Nobody knows his name. But the name that many people did learn was Lenny Skutnik, and he was just a young man in his 20s, like some of you, uh, who was on his way home from work that day, and he got as far as the 14th Street Bridge and he saw all the commotion, so he joined the other people milling about in the bank. And his eyes focused on 22-year-old flight attendant Priscilla Torado, who was screaming for help. Overcome with emotion, Lenny threw off his heavy coat and shoes and plunged into the frigid waters. When he reached this flight attendant, she was almost gone, but somehow he managed to bring her to shore. Everybody loves a hero, and so it was in the case of Lenny Skutnik. <clears throat> President Reagan acknowledged him in front of the nation at his State of the Union address, and ever since, every president has had a Lenny Skutnik there as well, because Reagan started that tradition. <clears throat> so, the kingdom is not about me. John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It's not about me, my classroom, my subjects, or even my students. It's about the kingdom. It's about something greater than ourselves. When we teach for the kingdom, we're aiming for something more than just our students being successful in society. The American dream would have us believe success is defined uh, in wealth and the ability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and so American education is divine, designed to develop the student to their fullest capacity and talents. 
And it's not that we don't want to do that, but we do it with a greater purpose than, than, than a student fulfilling their own dreams. So the kingdom is the way the world is truly made to operate. And Jesus told many stories to illustrate this, many parables that illustrate love of God and neighbor. And we might talk about this a little later in another session. Jesus said, on this hang all the law and the prophets, love of God and love of neighbor. So the kingdom is the true reality, which might seem sort of like a funny term, like a genuine fake, but it's designed to make you think about the fact that when you go out there in the world, the common sense that prevails is not necessarily the best sense to have. When we face death, like that flight attendant was, our priorities become immediately clear. Christians seek to live that way every day in the big picture reality. So in summary, the kingdom, educating is about becoming, and the kingdom is loving like Jesus. So educating for the kingdom would be about becoming like Jesus and loving like Jesus. So it's about becoming wise, knowing how to use that knowledge and get at the heart of a matter. And then the kingdom in the story I illustrated is about action, taking action, not sitting by while others have need, but having hearts of compassion. So this is our overall goal for our teaching and our theme for these four days in educating for the kingdom. So first of all, today, compassion. How do we get there? I assume we all want to be compassionate teachers and we know, yeah, we should have hearts of compassion. And we dream of the day when our students will graduate as compassionate students and go out and change the world. So how do we get there? The rest of our time will be spent in the middle block here. And I'd like to look at three questions in order to answer that question. How did Jesus teach with compassion? How do others teach with compassion? And how can I teach with compassion? And I will use these three questions each day as well as we look at each of our four themes. How did Jesus teach with that quality? How do others teach with that quality? And how can I teach with that quality? So first of all, how did Jesus teach with compassion? first thing we'd like to look at is touch. In Mark 1, 40, it says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And we know people were fearful of lepers, which was a contagious disease, and the lepers were outcast from society. Yet Jesus was willing to not only heal him, he could have healed him without touching him and risk getting leprosy himself. But he touched him to show he was willing to touch the lives of all men regardless of race, health, religion, creed, social or economic standing. Jesus Christ, the compassionate one, had time for others. He also had time to touch the children brought to him. Matthew 19, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. 
the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come unto me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Little children need touch and words of affirmation. Another thing Jesus we learn from Jesus is tears. Luke 19.41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He wept because his Jewish brethren refused his teaching. Do the needs of your students drive your teaching? John 11.35, Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. So he said he was only sleeping, so Lazarus was, so why would he weep? I don't think he just did it for the benefit of others. I think it was something deeper. He was face to face with the last enemy, death. He knew what humans fear most, and he knew what he would eventually have to do to overcome this enemy, and he was here to defeat our enemy, death. And so he wept. It's okay for our students to see us cry. In fact, it may be necessary sometime. And finally, testament. And what I mean by this, of course, it makes a nice third T, but uh, whatever Jesus meant by this new testament that he brought. Love of God and love of neighbor. Matthew twenty-two forty. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In Mark 6, when he went ashore, he, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So there his compassion drove his teaching. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, he told stories to illustrate the kingdom. This is what his testament is about. Think of the Good Samaritan par parable. This is how you live, okay? Everyone is our neighbor. That should be a driving understanding in your life. Or the lost sheep from Luke 15, or we think of the 90 and 9 that safely lay. Everyone counts, even that last student in your room that never quite fits in. So, forget everything else if it doesn't hang or fit into a loving paradigm picture or the New Testament of Jesus. Moving on now to how do others teach with compassion. You've heard of the phrase, people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. An example uh, based on that in the classroom, Rita Pearson said that she once heard a colleague say, they don't pay me to like the kids. And her response was, kids don't learn from people they don't like. So three stories about how others teach with compassion. First of all, a Buddhist teacher many years ago was wise and compassionate. He had many bright students. They held him in high respect, but there was one thing in the monastery they couldn't tolerate. There was a young disciple who would often steal from his brother monks. He would steal their money. He would steal things. Monks complained about him to their teacher 
Master, he steals things from us. Please advise him. The wise one said, give him some time. He will learn. They complained more. So the young monk was brought before the teacher. He was ashamed of his habit. He was determined to try to stop his habit. And the wise one told him to stop stealing things. But it was hard for him to change his mental pattern. A few days passed without any trouble, but he couldn't resist the temptation for long. So unfortunately, he was called again, and the monks paraded him again to the wise one, saying, asking him to dismiss him. Give him some time, said the wise one. <clears throat> Finally, the monks were so impatient that they told the teacher, either he has to go or we will go. All right, then, you all may leave. I'm not going to abandon him, came the reply. The monks were all surprised. Oh, master, master, please, pleaded the disciples. You're all good disciples, and you will get admission to any monastery, but he won't be accepted anywhere else. I'm not going to leave him, said the compassionate one. The young monk who was watching all this commotion was touched by the compassion of the great one. His resolve was so strong that he gave up stealing thereafter for good. <clears throat> he did resolve not to steal, but he didn't have enough resolve. It was the compassion of his teacher that gave him enough resolve to change his actions. Another story, Mr. Bachman, <clears throat> my woodshop teacher, was the most influential teacher I ever had. I had gotten into trouble in his class. Another student had pushed me into a wood lathe, and I became, became enraged and began to hit him. Mr. Bachman stopped the fight. But instead of sending me to the office, he sat me down and asked me a question. Penna, why are you wasting your life? Why aren't you going to college? I didn't know anything about colleges and scholarships. I had never considered that a fatherless boy from the poorest neighborhood had a future. That day, instead of rushing off for lunch, he stayed and explained possible education options to me. At the end of our talk, he sent me to see a secretary. Well, 53 years have passed, and what I have done with the knowledge he gave me, I gained a PhD from Fordham when I was only 29. I taught English and social studies and then moved up from teacher to principal. I've sat on various boards. I've won a number of educational awards. But where would I be if a truly caring teacher had not taken time out of his lunch period to speak to me? It was without question only his confidence in me that propelled me forward. If I have been a successful educator, it is because I have had a great role model in Mr. Bachman. And that was from Robert Penna, New Jersey. And another story about a broken sculpture. It happened at my new school in fifth grade. We were learning sculpture, and I had decided to sculpt one of our cats. As it shaped up, I was proud of the product. It looked just as I had hoped. At the end of class, a classmate appeared with a cardboard box to gather up all the sculptures for storage. But as she dropped my sculpture into the box, it toppled. I watched in horror as my beloved sculpture tumbled through the air, becoming impaled on the side of the box. I felt a wrenching in my gut. I had to fix it. I grabbed it and began frantic reconstruction. My classmate was annoyed. She had a job to do. She didn't want to get into trouble. 
We argued. I insisted that I needed to fix it immediately because by our next class next week it would be dried and ruined. She insisted that I let it go. I became more and more distraught. A tussle ensued. Reaching my breaking point, I slammed my hand down the table and screamed, No! Startling the girl into jumping back. Then I fell apart. My memories do not begin again until the moment I began to calm down. I was sitting in a chair with my back against the wall. My vision was focused on a single tile on the opposite wall, and I heard a single repetitive sound. Crack, crack, crack. It was the sound that my skull made as I compulsively whacked it against the wall. I didn't know why I was doing it, except that each burst of pain seemed to somehow diminish the overwhelming tension. Gradually, I became aware of a soft sound, a voice, my teacher's voice. Slowly, it began to make sense. It's okay, Lynn. It's okay. As the crisis subsided, I began to become more lucid. When she was sure she had my attention, she calmly addressed my original worries. Then when she thought I was ready, she asked if I was ready to return to class. When I stood to go, I was startled to realize that my teacher and I stood alone in the classroom. The rest of the kids were clustered by the classroom door, staring. I felt a sh shame, wave of shame and embarrassment. The whole class had stopped over me. I found myself repeating, I'm so sorry. But then my teacher's arm tightened around me in a comforting squeeze, and I knew in that moment I couldn't give up. With a new strength, I walked toward the group of children with my head held high, determined to face whatever lay ahead. I have always remembered that moment, and I often wonder what would have happened if she had handled it differently. How can I teach with compassion? So first of all, bring your whole person Compassionate teachers bring their whole personalities to class and do not act as if they have left significant parts of themselves at home. Great teachers have emotional lives. They share personally. They are human. Teachers who check their emotions at the door will be dismissed by their students as phonies. Be alive and don't assume that professional means unemotional. Be positive in the classroom. Minimize little rules in favor of larger priorities. Do not feel compelled to exact adult behavior from all children all day. Smile. Give praise. I was reading in a book recently about a principal who had a teacher walk into her room after one of those days a lighting the bathroom on fire sort of day. And the principal said she looked in the teacher's eyes and she could tell the teacher was done. Just done, quit. The principal looked at her and said, no, you're not done. <clears throat> and you're, you're gonna have fun with these students. She asked her some questions. What do you enjoy doing? She found out the teacher enjoyed sewing. In fact, she had made her own dress that she wore to uh, her interview, which, was un, which is in, unusual in our culture today. And she enjoys beekeeping and selling honey from her bees. Well, the principal said, figure out how to bring that into your classroom. So she got sewing machines in her class. So some were donated, some she bought, and she taught sewing, and she incorporated beekeeping. 
the principal also told her, talk to your students, and I don't mean just in detention, but in the halls and at break time, engage your students, find out what interests them. And that teacher today is an, has not only not left the school, but she's an integral part of that principal's team. So don't underestimate what can happen if you bring yourself, your interests, to the classroom, engage your students, <clears throat> and they will then feel safe to share their interests and open themselves to you if you're opening yourself to them. Know who your students are. Obviously their names, and some of you might have big classes, but also their interests, strengths, and weaknesses. If you don't seek to know them, you will only learn to know the problem cases and the overachievers. The average student will believe their teacher has little concern for them and their work will reflect that belief. Put yourself in your student's place. Acknowledge their struggle, struggles. Don't have a superior attitude or be dismissive of their difficulties. You know, a lot of teachers are in teaching because school was good to them. You know, I enjoyed school, so what should I do? Well, I guess I'll be a teacher. And so maybe you never struggled as many students have in school. So you might have to work harder to, to uh, put yourself in your student's place. Show your understanding for why they're getting confused. Although that is an example you could say is, although that is wrong, I can understand why you think that or how you got there. So you're not labeling them as dumb or they didn't understand. You're, recognizing, you're acknowledging them as a person and saying, you tried, but I can, I can understand how you ended up there, but it's actually not right. So compassion doesn't mean we say, it's okay, we'll let that go. As Melvin talked this morning about tolerance, um, unlimited tolerance doesn't equal love. So compassion doesn't equal, ah, that's okay, well, you know, you did okay on that. It means we understand with them and fairly point out what is right. It means we don't criticize them as a person and make them feel belittled in intellect or character but we truly point out how to think rightly and behave rightly and improve wrong behavior. Speaking of wrong behavior, try to reprove confidentially. To be praised in the presence of peers is a rich reward, but to be rebuked in public often adds humiliation to reprimand, often out of proportion to the fault itself. So, do your best to reprove students in private, even if it's over by your desk, out in the hall, etc. I don't necessarily mean off behind closed doors somewhere while you ignore the rest of your class. But especially don't have a personal conf confrontation with them in front of the class. <laughs> Avoid favoritism. Your compassion must apply to all students or it isn't compassion. There will always be some students who require more attention, and that's okay because compassion is not measured in equal time. 
It's measured by your heart and by whether any student in your class feels neglected or excluded. There are always students who desperately want more attention and help, but are afraid to ask the teacher. Compassionate student teachers will find these students who need help. And there are always students whose behavior will tempt you to be hostile. Handling these students and knowing the difference will be one of the truest tests of compassion. Show interest in your students' future. Let them know there's a reason to persevere. Let them see you go to bat for them, perhaps taking criticism sometime. Let them know that they're the reason you're here. You wouldn't want to teach to an empty classroom. Make comments and ask questions about their future. You care about preparing them for life and life to come. You are educating them for the kingdom. Let them hear you say it. You aren't just here to get them through your room. So if you ever doubt the need for compassion as crucial in educating for the kingdom, remember the Holocaust. How could graduates of top universities organize a mass killing operation? Education is never neutral. We are always learning for something. Educating for the kingdom means that while learning about the complexities of life, we are shaping our students' hearts to desire the kingdom. And the greatest factor in that shaping is our actions. And I'll finish with the story illustrating one teacher's compassionate action. As an atomic bomb force tornado hit Plaza Towers Elementary School in Moore, Oklahoma, Oklahoma at about 3 p.m., teachers scrambled to get their charges. They herded some kids into bathrooms in the building's interior where sixth grade teacher Rhonda Crosswhite ran into a stall and lay on top of six students two under her arms, two under her torso, and two under her feet to shield them. One kid was crying, I don't want to die, and I yelled, we're all going to be fine. A cinder block landed on her back. Glass was embedded in her skin, but Crosswhite and the students were able to walk away from the ruins of the school, although seven students were killed at Plaza Towers that day. Afterward, the teacher and her colleagues were called heroes. A label Crossright White rejects, saying, Every morning at nine, those children become my children. I was just taking care of my kids. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.